as anyone who lives in strata will tell you, it's always changing, it's always evolving, and it's always challenging. Later on, we'll be talking to Jane Hearn for the second part of our chat about the new Airbnb or short-term letting laws, and specifically the register that has been proposed. But right now, we're going to be talking about different forms of shared community living. I'm Jimmy Thompson. I write the Flat Chat column for the Australian Financial Review and edit the Flat Chat website. And I'm Sue Williams, property writer and author. And this is the Flat Chat Wrap. So, Sue, what's happening with our car parks? Well, it just seems to be that we're not needing our car spaces so much anymore. I mean, this is a generational change that we've talked about for a long time. But it finally seems to be catching up with us. Um, lots of car parks in lots of apartment buildings seem to be, well, a little bit more empty than they've ever been before. And prices are still, apartments with no parking seem, still seem to be getting pretty good prices because not everybody needs a car space anymore. We all kind of thought we'd always need a car. Um, in Australia, we wedded firmly to the car, I think. But um, now, finally, that's just easing a little. Well... You are saying this in a week where an apartment car space went up for auction, previously having sold for $260,000. That's right, but how much did it sell for? I don't know. A lot less, I think. <laughs> <laughs> if it sold at all. Mm. I mean, the going rate, um, if you go on to uh, one of the, the websites like Domain, for instance, the going rate for a car park in the city centre is about 80000 to buy mm. and outside the city centre well the further you go from the city centre the, the cheaper they get um, obviously they still have some value to some people but how, how can that be if more people are not having cars how can there still be a demand for parking well it seems to be a generational thing as well um, younger people particularly millennials Apparently, a lot of them just are not interested particularly in driving anymore. A lot of them don't even have their tests and have no interest in having their own car. Um, they're a generation who've been brought up on, on catching Ubers on, um, and uh, they're kind of looking forward to a future of self-driving automated cars as well. And those aren't going to need car parking in the city centres because you'll just be able to summon a self-driving car whenever you need it. And at night it will go out and park somewhere, you know, a long way out in the suburbs where there's lots of space for very They'll cheap be driving off. I won't <laughs> be driving off to the suburbs together at night. That's You've right. just created a picture in my mind of uh, the future where all the, the baby boomers are Uber drivers driving all the millennials around <laughs> because the millennials don't know how to drive sure. and they haven't quite perfected the self-driving car yet. And the, the ones who can drive, I mean, they're, they're kind of, you know, this generation is not so much consumer-driven as perhaps previous generations were. And they don't, they've been brought up on um, kind of sharing services, this idea of, of kind of communal living. Mm. Um, and they're kind of getting cars on the GoGet platform, on those car sharing platforms a lot as well. So they don't need car spaces either. So if they can save some money on buying an apartment without a car space, many people are now, and even houses there are lots of houses around without car spaces, particularly in the inner city and in the inner ring, you know, the, the rows of old terrace houses where everybody has to just park on the street and there's just mm. never enough parking. Lots of those houses, their prices are still remaining extremely steady because really, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, I don't really need a car anymore. 
What about the uh, downsizers, the big families where mum and dad have a car each and the grown-up kids have one too, and and they're selling their properties in the suburbs and moving into apartments? Yeah, and I think a lot of those older generation are thinking, well, why do we need a car anymore? Because so many people are moving into the inner city and into the inner ring suburbs. We're seeing a big densification of our cities, and that's all around, concentrated around the transport nodes. So people are getting used to public transport, especially older people, because they have their gold Opal card now, and they can go a long, long way on $2.50 or whatever. So really, a car can be an unnecessary expense. This is a very glass-half-full view, if I may say so, because I'm thinking about those those families, those downsizing families, where they buy an apartment with two car spaces and turn up with five cars. <laughs> or am I being car park half-empty when I look at this? <laughs> I, I honestly think that's getting less and less. I honestly think, um, and, and statistics seem to, to, to back that up as well, that people are getting rid of cars more. They're kind of driving smaller cars. Um, they just don't Not around here, space. they're not. They're dri- driving these big, giant four-door utes that are bigger than the standard car, car space. Yeah, those are the downsizers before they actually get rid of them and realise that they don't need a country car in the city. Right. Because they're so hard to park and so hard to manoeuvre. Yeah, it is the biggest selling vehicle in Australia, by the way. Just letting you know. <laughs> but obviously they're, tur- they're turning four cars into one very large car. That's what's happening. So that would explain your statistics, <laughs> I think, maybe. So do you think that generally we are moving away from buying cars? I mean, are car sales generally dropping? Um, I don't know. But if you look at um, apartment living, certainly apartment residents are buying fewer cars. Yeah, yeah. And I have friends myself who live in apartments who now have sold their cars and they're just saying, well, I'm not going to replace it anymore. I'm going to just get a go-get car whenever I need to drive to the to the mountains or if I'm going away for a weekend or I want to drive out from Melbourne somewhere. The rest of the time they get Ubers or they use public transport. Another aspect that's come up in the last couple of years is car space sharing. This is where you're not sharing your car. You're sharing. I mean, are you sharing in the in the same definition as um, as Airbnb use it, which basic, basically means renting or letting. Um, you go on a website and you say, I live in this street and I leave at 7.30 in the morning in my car to go to work and I come back at 5.30 at night. Does anybody need a car space coming into this area? Sure, it's kind of an interesting idea, isn't it? Because it's hard with apartment buildings because lots of apartment buildings... They don't like people who aren't resident in an apartment building actually parking their cars in the apartment building. And I mm. think there has been a, a, a court case which has kind of thrown into question um, the right of apartment owners to say no, outsiders non building. They tried and, and lost on the question of non-residents because um, the court ruled that if you own a car space in a building, then you have to be allowed access to it, whether you live in the building or not. So if you rent a car space in a building, can you still have access to it? That battle has yet to be fought, All right. I think. <laughs> That's one for the near future. Hmm. Um, but so, and, but this, this, so with this reduction in the use of cars, what's happening to the big commercial car parks? 
Well, interesting you ask that because um, now we kind of, with space at such a premium in our cities, we kind of want to make the most of space. One of the big car parking companies, the biggest one, Secure Car Parking, they're starting up a pilot project later this month in Brisbane, and if it works, they're going to extend it everywhere, where they're doing pop-up homeless shelters in car right. parks as well. So they're installing kind of shower facilities, um, toilet facilities, hairdressing coming in. Wow. And they're putting up little beds or kind of, I don't know, swags or something like that in the different in the car spaces. And people can come in there and sleep from 10 p.m. until 6 a.m. in the morning. Then they they get them to leave. And then the cars, car, car people can come back wow. in. And presumably they have security as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Which is a great idea, isn't it? Because, you know, they're sheltered from the rain and stuff and they're going to be secure. They're not going to be beaten up or, you know, mm. hopefully it's going to... It's a really good idea. Putting homeless people into empty car parks works on so many levels. It's a joke. <laughs> oh, very funny. <laughs> and the using them for homeless people brings us neatly to our next topic... Which is affordable housing, and we'll be talking about that after this. I'm Jimmy Thompson, I'm with Sue Williams, and we are now talking about new generation boarding houses and co living. So, first of all, Sue, what's the difference? Okay, um, a new generation boarding house, I think boarding houses, it's always a really pejorative term. We think of them as really dingy, dark, awful places where people go to live when they're absolutely on their last dollar. Um, There might be people who've just come freshly out of prison or, you know, they're just the victim of a divorce or they just have, have just nothing. So they go and stay in these really horrible places. But there are now new generation boarding houses springing up, both new builds and renovations of the old boarding houses. And they're basically kind of single rooms, really, um, but they have access to shared communal facilities like communal kitchens and things. And these um, new generation boarding houses are much smarter than the other ones. They're kind of nice, modern and and nice colours and crisp new fit-outs. And a lot of young people are moving into them because... Um, they're really into the sharing economy. They're really into communal areas. And these boarding houses, they typically tend to be about 20 kind of studios in, in one block. They right. tend to be quite small. And the other movement is co-living, where people live in studios. So they're kind of a little bit like a boarding house, but they're bigger, really. Right. Um, but they, they have a little kitchenette. They have, you know, obviously their own bathroom. But they have a little bit more space than in the boarding houses. And they can be in blocks which tend to be much larger. They might have um, 45 apartments, 45 studios to one block. And they tend to have much nicer communal facilities as well, much more extensive. They might actually have a shared gym. They'll have have their own kitchenettes, but they'll also have a big communal kitchen and maybe a big communal dining room as well. All right. And um, they'll have a TV room. And it's kind of about socialisation as well as just... um, cheaper living yeah um so people immediately have a network of people that they can tap into it might be people coming from overseas want to kind of live in one of these places or it might mm. be young people just setting out on their own but it, it can, could be you know kind of anyone really somebody i mean we all probably remember 
well, not all of us, but a number <laughs> of us <laughs> remember university where yeah. we kind of we had little studios or little rooms and we had shared kitchens and things, and it was kind of good fun. You'd made yeah. some good friends, and I made one of my roommates there. You know, she's been a close friend of mine for like forty years now, which shows right. my age, I suppose. But it's it's great. You kind of meeting people in the place where you live, and co-living. There, there are a few places in Sydney, and there's a place in Melbourne which is opening up soon, and they tend to be operated by smaller operators. Right. But I um, interviewed Iwan Sunito, the the CEO of Crown Group, yep. this week, and he was saying he's actually going to get into co-living now, which All is right. really interesting. Iwan has a new development by Crown Group, a Mastery by Crown, which is a, a big new development in Waterloo, um, in one of the inner ring suburbs. And that comprises a really tall tower and a number of smaller buildings. <clears throat> and one of those blocks, which has 45 um, units, he's now going to make completely co-living. And it's interesting because Crown Group specialise in doing apartments with lots of communal facilities. Yeah. And some of his buildings, he's had piano rooms, yoga studios, yeah. always a gym and a pool, yeah. and always gardens. Yes. So he really prizes communal living. And he believes that philosophy will now he can now bring that to co-living because he reckons he's going to have some fantastic facilities there, and he's going to provide services like personal training, um, music lessons, things like that that people can actually subscribe to and sign up for, right. and then he'll get his company to come in and actually take those. Also, a pop-up master chef kitchen to give um, cooking lessons because maybe some um, people may have just left home for the first time and they yeah. don't know how to cook. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. And then he was saying that service, he, he might extend to all his apartments as well. So not so much the communal living as the the, 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 the personal training, the That's chef, right. yeah. that, that kind of thing. Because that could be a whole new division of his build business, really, I suppose. I guess he's always looking for you It know, sounds like he's model. into community building as a maybe a legacy thing for him. I mean, it's all very well to be building very nice buildings around the city, but to have something beyond that. Mm. And he's quite a spiritual person, I believe. So. That's right. He has his own church. That's, <laughs> pre that's pretty spiritual. spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> Much more spiritual than that. Yeah. Um, but this co-living thing is presumably the building is not strata. It would be owned by either the developer or a management company. That's right. He's, he's planning to, to keep um, ownership of it. But he could conceivably at some point sell out to a management company, like one of the companies which are having other um, co-living places elsewhere. But basically, as a tenant of one of these units, you would come under the Residential Tenancy Act. It wouldn't be under the Strata Act. You no, know, that's you know, right. Yeah. Basically, there'd be a set of rules, and if you don't want to follow them, go out. and live somewhere else. Yep. And I talked to some other developers, and they're actually all looking at the model as well now, which is ah. interesting. I mean, it, it looks like it could really... I, I see it as a as a stepping stone for the people who have been living in a house were probably with their parents and the whole idea of living in an apartment block is alien to them. It's kind of like easing them into the idea of being part of a community. And we shouldn't forget that people have been sharing houses for hundreds mm. of years, you know, you which is kind of good for the future of apartment living because then maybe we'll be bringing a whole new generation into it who are much more used to sharing communal facilities and won't be kind of quite so selfish as many of us baby boomers are saying, no, no, this is our 
yeah, space. And my my home is my castle. That's you, right. You, maybe, I own this. You can't tell me what to do. Yeah. 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 Those rules are for other people. Yeah. But, it's pretty handy for young people because rather than take on rental of, an, of a two-bedroom apartment perhaps and then having to find a flatmate and kind of yeah. then working out in the contract who, who has responsibility for the, for the rent and things. With these little studios, with co-living, they can go in there much more cheaply and they don't have to worry about who they're sharing with really because there's going to be a big community there and they yeah. can pick and choose who they want to be friends. I can see a TV series coming out of this <gasps> right now. Absolutely, you could call it Friends. Or Has I was thinking done? more Crash Palace, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> That's yes. my, one of my previous TV shows, for those of you who don't realise. Um, yeah, cool living, Crash Palace. Mm, there's a thought. <laughs> now, this has been going on for a while overseas. Um, yeah. The it's, UK it's and the States. And Hong Kong. It's and proving Hong Kong. really popular. Yeah. But there is a downside, you discovered. Well, it's interesting. When you look at some of the... Um, co-living blocks that already exist in Sydney. They're, they're in kind of Stanmore. They're in the inner west, and there's one just open in Paddington. You look at their address on the internet, and you discover so many of them are now listed on Airbnb. Our old friends, Airbnb. They're in there. So much for dealing with the housing shortage. As soon as you build something, somebody sticks it on Airbnb. Which brings us to our next segment, because we're going to go back and finish off the conversation we had last week with Jane Hearn, and we're going to be talking about the proposed registry, um, which we think must be a good idea because we know that Airbnb hate it. So I'm going to leave Sue at the moment, and we're going to come back later with some funny stories. That's after this. Last week we spoke to Jane Hearn, the Vice Chair of the Owners' Corporation Network, about the new short-term letting regulations. We covered a lot of ground, including fire safety and planning regulations. What we didn't get round to was the plan to have a register of short-term letting properties. So, picking up from last week, here's Jane with her thoughts on the registry. Does it worry you that it's going to be, according to the proposal that's out there for discussion, it's going to be managed by the industry? Well, I think this is um, something that's not entirely clear. The language is industry-led, and um, that, you know, nothing happens by accident. So that language has been chosen uh, specifically to convey something, but nobody actually knows <laughs> what it's intended to convey. All, all the stakeholders, you know, both both the international global platforms, the domestic holiday letting industry, local government, owners corporations network, everybody has said there should be a registration system of some type. Right. It's only been Airbnb that has objected. And I think we know um, fundamentally we know why. And that's oh, yeah. because, you know, they are competing for market share. They they they're commercially very sensitive. They none of them want to really reveal what their inventory is. Right. Um, so there's that aspect to it. Of course, they also want to not divulge, uh, not give that data to regulatory authorities because there's so much illegal use going on. Um, and there's also, of course, a lot of illegal subletting by tenants yeah. in addition to legal use that breaches planning law. I think that the minister that we currently have, we have uh, a new minister, 
is more pragmatic. It's and David I, Anderson. It is, is right? Kevin Anderson. Kevin Anderson. Yes. Who's David Anderson? Yes. Uh, Kevin Anderson. Uh, he's far more pragmatic. I think he understands that there are real implementation issues um, and so that he has accepted uh, in principle that there is a need for some form of registration. Yeah. Um, the Department of Fair Trading or the Office of Fair Trading has always said that it is uh, too big and too much you know, for them. Some of the industry stakeholders have said that you know, there are existing registration systems that can effectively be provided, but the detail is not there. Mm. Um, we think, and the local councils and groups like OCN have always said this should be, it's a government function, mm. um, it should be run by a government agency. If it can't be run by a government agency, then it should be a neutral platform right. that is in the business of monitoring and uh, is in that business of monitoring and compliance. Like B&B Guard? Yes, a company like B&B Guard. Right. That, that's very much the sort of business, you know, the space that they're in. Yeah. That's a different approach from just getting the data from individual platforms. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot more work to be done around this to make sure that New South Wales doesn't make the mistake of charging off and accepting what a platform is giving them mm. without really looking at all of the issues about where and how that fits into a broader regulatory system. Yeah. That's not to create more bureaucracy or more red tape, but that's so that it's effective and it's efficient and it fits within the system so that local government, for example, um, can work with the provider to design it so mm. that we know we've got the data fields that we need, that they can actually go and have direct access into it so that they can uh, they can create their own disaggregated sort of reports for their local government areas as and when they need them, things like that, um, that are features that are actually relatively easy to build. They already happen for other industries yeah. and other professional groups. So, you know, we think this has been an issue that's just gone on for too long. Mm. It shouldn't have been so contest contested. Yeah. And the what we don't want is that self-regulation and what we see with self-regulation is what we have in construction defects. Yeah, that worked really well, didn't it? Self-certification. Right. It's been a huge success. Right. Huge success. So we know that um, you know it doesn't need to be complicated. It needs to be a moderate cost. Um, but really, what's really important is that there are some specific obligations so that hosts must register the premises and that should be part of the planning criteria. So it's absolutely clear that if it's not registered, it is not lawful. Yeah. So that would have to be a criteria of exempt or complying development and that the platforms, agents and other websites, companies have a clear obligation to not list an unregistered property as if we don't have that, we will have the situation that has happened overseas that thousands of essentially illegal apartments yeah. will still be on the market um, with people trying to dodge all of the regulatory standards. So uh, having decided to take power away from the local council and create this kind of blanket approach with a statewide policy, yeah. the obligation is really on state government to make sure that the registry system is statewide, but that it is fit for purpose and it actually does the job. Uh, look, I, I think when you start talking about penalties, it's very easy to sound very punitive and very anti. But the fact of the matter is, is that 
you know, we create regulatory systems and they have penalties to back them up because it sends the clear message we're doing this for a reason. You know, there are sound public 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 policy reasons for doing it. There's a clear public interest in maintaining these standards and if and we need to be able to enforce it and the only way you can enforce it is with a penalty. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I think we accept that in all areas of our life. We register our cars and we accept that there are very serious consequences we for not doing our so. Dogs. We register our dogs. We register our swimming pools. You know, registration shouldn't be a big deal. No. Um, it really shouldn't. And one of the things that it will give government at state and local level and, you know, the, the public interest bodies as well, and in fact the industry as well, is it will create a base of data so that we know what what is the profile of this industry? Who is doing what? Yes. What percentage is just somebody renting a room? Yeah as a, a sort of a, a B&B type yeah. host and the reasons why they're doing that. And what percentage are actually people who are vacating for very long periods from their principal home yeah. and, or have given over their investment property entirely to short-term letting? Yeah. And unless we can sort of slice and dice the data and get a proper profile, we can't really see with a lot of accuracy, what's happening. We know what's happening. Yeah. We know there's enough data. We're spread. living it. We know. But um, I think it, it's a perfectly justified thing to do, particularly when we're talking about something as important as housing. Right. And I think what it makes people do is it makes them stop and think about what they're doing. So they're doing it consciously. They're making clear, conscious decisions about yeah. what they're doing. They know what the regulatory standards are. And, you know, that I think is a far better approach than people not being aware of regulatory standards. You know, they, these are thousands of, of amateurs, essentially. Yeah. They expose themselves to a lot of risk as well. Yeah. So um, I think that really, as I said, I don't think this should be something that's so contested. Uh, it really needs to be done from the beginning, not uh, something that's instituted halfway through. So we would say that the whole scheme shouldn't start until there's a register set up and in place and ready to go. Right. Uh, because if it, you know, this will take years to solve unless mm. there's some real commitment mm. to doing it in a way that I think is um, uh, credible. So looking at the whole picture, all the documents and, and encouraging our listeners to go and, and get online and uh, join OCN. Join OCN. <laughs> well, you can, only, you can only buy the bylaw if you're a member. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole picture of these, these uh, discussion documents, are you more or less hopeful than you were before they came out? To be honest, I'm less hopeful because I think what's happened in New South Wales is that there's no pretense now that this is about home sharing, right. even though that language gets used, even in government documents, yeah. which I think is um, misleading to the dishonest, public. Really. Yes, it's dishonest. Um, it is not home sharing. We are talking about the use of residential dwellings for this activity, and it is commercial. Yeah. It is a it's a transaction between unrelated parties, yeah. so it's commercial in that sense. And um, there is so much pressure from industry to get rid of the caps. And a lot of the reason that's happened is because New South Wales has gone down the state-wide approach. Yeah. And uh, I'm certainly told by people who are in the business of 
monitoring and compliance, that it's probably the worst way to do it. Yes. And that the provinces and states in other countries that have done this have the most problems. Yeah. You need to be able to fine-tune things at a more local level. Yeah. That is inconvenient to industry because, you know, they regard that as red, tra- red tape yeah. and cost to their yeah. business. But what we're talking about here is people's homes, particularly in strata buildings, yes. apartment buildings. There's absolutely nothing from a planning law perspective that could that would stop an entire residential block being taken over by short-term letting with no DA approval. There's no threshold at which it converts to be and requires reclassification. Mm. Um, there are none of those none of those controls in place at all. So the only thing that people have is the bylaw. That's all you've got. And to get that bylaw, you need to go to ocn.org.au. Join up. It's probably the best money that your owner's corporation will spend this year. How's how's that for a a plug? That's good. And I think that the bylaw is... um, We've set the bylaw at a very moderate price because we want as many people, particularly the small schemes, to be able to have it. Instead of going to your own, um, going to another strata lawyer and spending $1,000, we've had a specialist strata lawyer draft this specially for you. It's $200 plus a bit of GST. Right. And um, you need to be a member and our executive officer will be very happy to take your call. Okay. Uh, My thanks to Jane Hearn for chatting to us uh, my apologies for the banging which has stopped um they gave it an authentic feel don't it did. you think i might i might start using that yeah. in all my recordings yeah, sound thanks very much Jim. thank you our thanks to jane for that contribution it's all very interesting it'll be fascinating to see how it pans out now we're rejoined by sue williams to talk about what we think is one of the Funniest, weirdest stories of the week, if not the year. Well, that was an amazing story, wasn't it, about Jackson's Landing in Piermont in Sydney, about the building manager who managed to kind of build his own apartment in the bowels of one of the car parks of the building. Yeah. And who was pilfering stuff from all everybody else's car spaces and from their apartments, I think, as well. And he built himself this absolute Aladdin's cave, (laughs) which was only discovered by police because somebody heard the washing machine going in there. Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, wow. Because um, it was all intertwined with some allegations of him being connected to some drug dealers because not only had he built a bedroom and a living room and a storage room for all the stuff he'd stolen out of people's storage cages... He was planning to build a hydroponic cannabis growing operation. Growing yeah. operation. I mean, this guy, he, he would be up for Entrepreneur of the Year, wouldn't he? Absolutely. Well, maybe once he gets out of jail. <laughs> it certainly makes our building manager of our building look a bit slack. Yeah, well, honest <laughs> well, yeah. Would, be the, would be the first thing that strikes me. I mean, not, this guy was in charge of four buildings and uh, down in Piermont, down Jackson's Landing. And uh, the two reactions from people, and they were both almost exactly the same wording, but one was a complaint and one was praise. And they were both saying he was always here. He was always around. (laughs) And some people were saying it was fantastic. You know, you needed anything done, he would get it done. He would look after the tradespeople. And, you know, it was great to have this guy around. 
And uh, the the other people were saying, "Wow, it's like you know he's stalking us." He's that's <laughs> right. And the and the thing is, he was because yeah. he'd he'd wired up their security cameras uh, down to his little lair in the bowels of, of one God, of the buildings. God, yeah, so he could see who was coming and going. Yeah. He might be letting in tradespeople, but he'd be taking yeah. out a lot more than yeah. he would bring he in. He could see who was going to work and uh, have a little Ooh. rootle around in their storage cages and wow. things. It's, you just realise what an element of trust there is mm. in building managers. And you know that there's no qualification. <gasps> and they probably don't do police checks on them either. Well, they, maybe some building companies do, but... Yeah, Possibly well, not I, all of them. I think they will be starting that quite soon. Yes. And, although this guy had, as far as I know, he'd never been convicted of anything mm. in the past or, mm. or maybe some you know, minor things. But I think he just kind of maybe lost the plot a little bit. And, and he's confessed to everything. He's admitted mm. to everything. Yeah. So, so he's in custody. He's basically said, yep, you got me, bang to rights. Wow, I wonder how many years it's been going on. Two or three, at least. He was building his, his home units out of water tanks. It's, wow. I mean... In, Did in nobody a, notice? Well, no, not until, as you say, the washing machine started going where a washing machine wasn't supposed to be operating. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you'd have to think that all over Sydney right now, television writers are sitting down <laughs> devising <laughs> plots about the weird guy who lived in the basement. <laughs> I mean, it reminds me of where we used to live once. In A homeless man set up home in a car space. It was kind of one of those car spaces where somebody had... Um, it was a cage. Cage, yeah. So you could see inside it, but, you know, you couldn't, you didn't have access to it. And he'd kind of filled it with lots of old clothes and things. Yeah, you and he was actually, actually sleeping in there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he'd stacked so much on the inside. Yeah. And it was sad because you couldn't have him. He was a fire risk apart from anything else. But but he was quite a good neighbour. I mean, there was never any noise or nuisance <laughs> or anything. So well, was... he, he wasn't playing his stereo very loudly <laughs> at night because I don't think he had electricity in there. Um, but, yeah, it's sad. I mean, that's one of the sad things, and, and it comes back to what we were saying before about homelessness. You know, people just desperately... And car parks. Homelessness and car parks. There's a connection. So our government needs to get onto it right now. <laughs> pop up, pop up, shared accommodation. That's mm. but you know you know what will happen as soon as they, as soon as they make it effective, they'll go on Airbnb immediately. Oh. <laughs> Thanks again, Sue, for coming in and having a chat. Pleasure to me. And uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Now. If you enjoy these podcasts, and I hope you do, or you wouldn't still be listening, please subscribe through whatever method you get them. There's all sorts of things listed on the Flat Chat website. If you want to know more about apartment living, come to flat-chat.com.au. There's all sorts of things there. There's a forum, there's stories. It's very lively. We keep it going every week. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I'm Jimmy Thompson. Talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.